Hopefully, God is stirring the hearts of some of us as we go through this study on the book of Acts, the emphasis being on looking beyond, being a church that sees its mission beyond our gatherings on Sunday, beyond the walls of the church and even beyond the borders. That's been the theme of our study. And so if you have your Bible, I invite you to open with me to Acts chapter 15, verses 1 through 35. Acts 15, 1 to 35. If you don't have a Bible, there's one provided for you right there in the back of the pew in front of you. You'll find this passage on page 783 or 823 of the Pew Bible. And the title of this morning's message is No More Burden Except These. And that may sound a little awkward or confusing. Uh, Hopefully it'll make a little bit more sense when we get into the text because we we see essentially that phrase there. But, But it deals with the subject of legalism and lawlessness. A dispute had arisen in the church revolving essentially around the question, what must a person do to be saved? And that's a relevant question for us today, isn't it? What what must a person do to be saved? Do I only need to have faith in Christ or do I need to believe and also be a good person? And if I have to be good, how good? And good in what ways? And if I stop being good, is the deal off? You know, and can I lose my salvation? Now, not all those questions are asked directly in the text or addressed directly in this text, but but the, the dispute itself and the discussion and resolution of it has implications for all of those things. And it's relevant for all of us because we have a tendency as I, I think I alluded to this last week, but we have a natural tendency to slide in one direction or the other, either toward legalism or toward lawlessness. I, I picture Christian liberty, and we, we sang about it there, right, that I have been set free. Christian liberty, I, I, I picture as dwelling a, a, atop this high hill, okay, And it's a slippery slope on either side of the top of that hill. One slope leads down into legalism, and the other slope leads down into lawlessness. And nobody has to push us off of the hill in order to end up in one place or the other. We uh, uh, sort of, out of our own hearts and our own natures, we can wander and drift one direction or the other, maybe sometimes both directions at different times, and find ourselves slipping into either legalism or lawlessness. And so if it, if it seems like this message on the surface is not relevant to you, then it's probably especially relevant to you. Because as believers, the implication of that is we, we need to continue to live by the gospel. The, the, the gospel was not just good news that led us to this point of a transaction we did with God and then live happily ever after. But because of the nature we still contend with that, that, that draws us one errant direction or the other, we, we need to continue to live by the grace of God. And that's what's at issue in Acts 15, verses 1 through 35. Let's look there together now. And I'm going to ask you, to stand, if you're able, in honor of the reading of God's word. Acts 15, beginning in verse 1, I'm reading out of the English Standard Version. Listen to the word of the Lord. 
But some men came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. And after Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and debate with them, Paul and Barnabas and some of the others were appointed to go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and elders about this question. So being sent on their way by the church, they passed through both Phoenicia and Samaria, describing in detail the conversion of the Gentiles and brought great joy to all the brothers. When they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and the elders, and they declared all that God had done with them. But some believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees rose up and said it is necessary to circumcise them and to order them to keep the law of Moses. The apostles and the elders were gathered together to consider this matter. And after there had been much debate, Peter stood and said to them, Brothers, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you that by the mouth of the Gentiles, that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. And God, who knows the heart, bore witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit, just as he did to us. And he made no distinction between us and them, having cleansed their hearts by faith. Now, therefore, why are you putting God to the test? By placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear. But we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus, just as they will. And all the assembly fell silent. And they listened to Barnabas and Paul as they related what signs and wonders God had done through them among the Gentiles. After they finished speaking, James replied, Brothers, listen to me. Simeon has related how God first visited the Gentiles to take from them a people for his name. And with this, the words of the prophets agree, just as it is written. After this, I will return and I will rebuild the tent of David that has fallen. I will rebuild its ruins and I will restore it, that the remnant of mankind may seek the Lord and all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord who makes these things known from of old. Therefore, my judgment is that we should not trouble those of the Gentiles who turn to God, but should write to them to abstain from the things polluted by idols and from sexual immorality and from what has been strangled and from blood. For from ancient generations, Moses has had in every city those who proclaim him, for he has read every Sabbath in the synagogues. Then it seemed good to the apostles and the elders with the whole church to choose men from among them and send them to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas. They sent Judas, called Barsabbas, and Silas, leading men among the brothers, with the following letter. The brothers, both the apostles and elders, to the brothers who were of the Gentiles in Antioch and Syria and Cilicia, greetings. Since we have heard that some persons have gone out from us and troubled you with words unsettling your minds, although we gave them no instructions, it has seemed good to us, having come to one accord, to choose men and send them to you, with our beloved Barnabas and Paul, men who have risked their lives for the sake of our Lord Jesus Christ. We have therefore sent Judas and Silas, who themselves will tell you the same things by word of mouth. For it has seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us to lay on you no greater burden than these requirements, that you abstain from what has been sacrificed to idols and from blood, and from what has been strangled and from sexual immorality. If you keep yourself from these, you will do well. Farewell. 
So when they were set off, they went down to Antioch and having gathered the congregation together, they delivered the letter. And when they had read it, they rejoiced because of its encouragement. And Judas and Silas, who were themselves prophets, encouraged and strengthened the brothers with many words. And after they had spent some time, they were sent off in peace by the brothers to those who had sent them. But Paul and Barnabas remained in Antioch, teaching and preaching the word of the Lord with many others also. Let's pray. Father, we're grateful as always to be able to open your word, knowing that you by your spirit have spoken in it. And it has something important, vitally important for us to say always, but particularly today on this subject as we're gathered in this place. And so we ask you, Lord, to speak your word by your spirit through your servant to your people for your glory and for our good. And Lord, would you use my voice as just a vehicle by which you'll communicate yours. Move me out of the way that we, your people, might hear what you have to say to us today. And we ask it in the name of Jesus, amen. And you may be seated. Well, Paul and Barnabas had returned to Antioch at the conclusion of their first missionary journey. We've looked at that over the last couple of weeks. They had gone out uh, to Cyprus and up through the region of uh, Pamphylia, Phrygia, and Galatia to some cities there and um, had returned. And in the course of that journey, Gentiles were being converted. In significant numbers, of course, they were being brought to faith in Jesus And there were signs and wonders being performed among them, even as the Holy Spirit manifests the presence of God among them. And at the end of chapter 14 there, it says, when they arrived back in Antioch, they gathered the church together to tell them all that God had done with them and how he had opened a door of faith to the Gentiles. And then as chapter 15 unfolds, there's a dispute and a discussion, a decision and then a delivery. That's sort of how the chapter outlines. I'm not going to say much more at all about the delivery of that letter uh, to the church at Antioch. But I want to unpack um, sort of these sections about the dispute, the discussion, the decision, and then see at the end what does all that have to do with you and me. And so we, we, we kind of set it up here that... Uh, Paul and Barnabas have come back reporting to Antioch what God has done done among the Gentiles, and it's in that context that the dispute arose. According to verse 1, if you look there, the men who went out from Jerusalem said, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. Now, this would be the kind of requirement you would want to know about before you signed the contract, so to speak. Right? I mean, so it's understandable that this, as it says down in verse 24, that this would, this troubled them and was unsettling to their minds. I think that's an understatement. I'll say no more about that. And it's understandable that Paul and and Barnabas would, would vigorously debate the issue with them. It says there was no small dissension um, about this. 
And so verse two says that Paul and Barnabas and some of the others were appointed to go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and elders about this question. And, and I wanna mention here, uh, just sort of in parentheses, this is not really central to um, the message, but just notice that, that the church appointed somebody to go up to the apostles and elders to address the issue. They didn't say, you know what, we just, uh, we just disagree about this and we're, we're, just gonna, we're just gonna start our own church here in Antioch. You know, we're just, we're, we got a different vibe going on. We're trying to create a different culture and kind of thinking differently about how we're gonna do church here in Antioch. And so we're just gonna do our own thing. Thanks for your support, all you've done for us this so far and, you know, God bless you. But they recognize a connection with other churches. This isn't just a loose association or a, or a friendship with other churches, like a kinship. They're connected in a way where there's some accountability. And they recognize that there's a, a voice of spiritual authority outside their local church. So I'll just mention that parenthetically. We, uh, our church, um, recognizes the same thing. It's part of, part of our what identifies us or whatever as Presbyterians, a connection with other churches and accountability to an authority outside the local church. But I just kind of wanted to observe that. But upon their arrival in Jerusalem, almost immediately, there are some who state it's necessary to circumcise them and order them to keep the law of Moses. So you see it says there they were kind of welcomed and greeted. And it's almost like the, these believers who were among the party of the Pharisees we're waiting to say, you know, okay, now that we got the platitudes out of the way, let, let, me just, let me just make real clear, they have to be circumcised and keep the law of Moses. So the lines are drawn immediately and the discussion begins. So beginning in verse six, the apostles and the elders were assembled together, together and it says there was much debate about the issue. And then in, in what seems to be a very orderly fashion, after much debate that we don't know the content of, other than what I guess we can infer from the conclusion. But after that debate, the floor is given to Peter and then to Barnabas and Paul and finally James, who kind of makes some concluding remarks. But let's look at some of the highlights of Peter's remarks. In particular, Peter, you know, is an influential guy um, and he's been kind of front and center in a lot of the life of the church uh, in the first 12 chapters of the book of Acts. But look at what he says, beginning in verse seven, that after there had been much debate, Peter stood up and said to them, brothers, you know that in the early days, God made a choice among you that by my mouth, the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. And so one of the points here, he, he reminds them that God chose to save the Gentiles. It's a reminder to the assembly, as we've been reminded throughout this study, that, that the, the gospel is good news of what God has done, not good advice about we must do, right? Or not even what we maybe ought to do. <laughs> good news about what God has done. God took the initiative to save the Gentiles as he had intended to do from the very beginning uh, of sort of his covenant with mankind. That was part of the plan. But God took the initiative, and that's the, the ground of 
confidence that the Gentiles belong in the family of God as it is the ground of confidence that we belong to God, that we can't be snatched away from him because it's a work that he has done and not something about what we must do. God made a choice to save the Gentiles. But then in verses eight and nine, Peter goes on to say, and God who knows the heart bore witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit as he did to us. And he made no distinction between us and them, having cleansed their hearts by faith. He gave them the Holy Spirit just as he did the Jewish believers without distinction. Then it says, he cleansed their hearts by faith. Part of what I want to draw out here is that that is a reference to something that happened in the past, right? Something that was done. Remember what's at issue here is that uh, the, the Judaizers, some among them are saying, no, they also have to be circumcised. They also have to keep the law of Moses. The big question here is, is there an also? Is there an also have to? And what Peter says is, God cleansed, past tense, their hearts by faith. I've, uh, I've referenced this before, but when you, when you read the New Testament, you see salvation spoken of in terms of having a, a past dimension, a present dimension, and a future dimension. That we were saved from the penalty of sin. We are being saved from the power of sin. We will be saved from the very presence of sin. We talk about those, um, we, we use words like justification for what has been done in the past, and, and, and we are, are being made now more holy through the process of sanctification, and um, ultimately we will be glorified. Justification, sanctification, glorification, those are big, you know, $100 college words, and you know, you can add those to your vocabulary, make yourself some flashcards and study them this week or whatever. But now, but now part, of the reason, part of the reason I reference that is not because um, it's so much right here in the text, it isn't, but, but this, this gets confused because, because what's at issue is do they need to do something else other than just believe in order to be saved? Or on the other hand, does it not matter at all what I do? Right? Is there, is there a law I must keep in order to be saved? Or may I live in a way that's completely lawless? And part of the reason that gets confused is when we either blend together justification and sanctification as being the same thing, that we confuse the present work that God is doing in us with the past work that's already done or if we just erase the work of sanctification altogether as if that's nothing. Unless I confuse you by dragging you down in the weeds there, I'm gonna move on. Hopefully I'll shine some light on that as we come back around at the end. But Peter wraps up his remarks in verses 10 and 11 saying, now therefore, why are you putting God to the test by placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear, but we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus just as they will. Now, two things to notice um, there. First of all, there's a will be. 
future tense, right? He's, he's, so Peter's mentioned right here a past tense. They have been cleansed in a future tense. We will be saved, but even so, it's by grace. It is certain that God will finish what he started. That's the implication. He has cleansed them by faith, and they'll, they will be saved ultimately uh, by grace just as we will. And then Barnabas and Paul's remarks really just serve to confirm what Peter just said. They say, you know, yeah, what, what, what God did among the Gentiles in that one particular instance of Cornelius and his household, he did multiplied many times over through our ministry in, in Antioch of Pisidia and Iconium and Lystra and Derby. We've seen throngs of Gentiles come to the Lord. He actually didn't use throngs, but... Uh, but wasn't just one household. We've seen, we've seen this happen lots of times. And then James kind of concludes the whole discussion, uh, first in verses 14 through 17, where he basically says, yeah, uh, what Peter says, what Peter's reminding us of that God did among the Gentiles, God said through the prophets that was going to happen. And then he cites Amos 9 there in verses 16 through 17, which says the Gentiles, it kind of references that the Gentiles will be included in the people of God. And then verses 19 through 20 kind of get to the crux of the matter um, of what the Jerusalem council really decided. And it says there, therefore, my judgment is that we should not trouble those of the Gentiles who turn to God, but should write to them to abstain from things polluted by idols and from sexual immorality and from what has been strangled and from blood. And then verse 22 through 29 goes, goes on to say what their decision was. So that's the discussion concluding with James's recommendation there. Then they, they have a decision to make in verses 22 through 29, and they basically adopt James's recommendation and say, we're going to send a letter to Antioch to that effect. And they appoint Paul and Barnabas along with two others to deliver the report. And then, it, and then down in verses 28 and 29, it summarizes that same decision Look there with me. Summarizes the decision, or the, which was James' recommendation. For it has seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us to lay on you no greater burden than these requirements, that you abstain from what has been sacrificed to idols and from blood and from what has been strangled and from sexual immorality. If you keep yourself from these, you will do well. Farewell. Now, I, I wish there were more time to say more about any number of things in <laughs> this passage. That's the way I feel every week. I'm going to try to take on 35 verses in the book of Acts. It's just kind of the way it goes. But you may be asking, if you're, if you're following along, and, you know, Peter's saying, no, their hearts were cleansed by faith. They'll be saved by grace. You may be wondering, where does, that, where does this come from? I mean, it's things strangled and blood and things polluted you know, by idols, what, is, what does that have to do with anything? And we don't know entirely. Uh, it's likely that's part of the much debate that they had in verse 7. That's, those are some of the things that are at issue. Um, he's, th- these are things that are referenced in Leviticus chapter 17 and 18 that would, uh, would, would actually apply to not only the Jews, but the strangers and sojourners among them as well. Um, but what seems really to be at the heart of the issue is if Jews and Gentiles are, are going to become one people, if the two are going to be made one, as Paul says in Ephesians 2, 
How are they going to have fellowship together if the Jews can't sit at the table uh, where there is things that they regard as unclean? They can't in their conscience sit down at that table and have fellowship with the Gentiles who feel totally free to eat meat that's still got blood in it or to to eat the blood itself and that kind of thing. Don't have a problem eating meat that's been sacrificed to idols and so forth. But in in order for this to actually work for them to live together as a body of people that includes Jews and Gentiles um, somebody something's got to give and and I should also mention here this is a sort of a pivotal and transitional moment in the whole history of the church and as the New Testament unfolds and more is revealed about that it says uh, more about the fact that the ceremonial law is not binding on the believer and yet uh, the moral law is. But uh, again, there's not time to say really more about that. But, but the, the primary thing I wanted to notice here in verse 28 is this, that if we, if we kind of, we, we can extract from that statement, it seemed good to the Holy Spirit to lay on you requirements. And I'm, I'm highlighting this because, as I, as I said, we, we've just dealt with the issue. The, the real issue at hand is a legalism, a legalism issue, right? It, are, there, are there works that they need to do, um, ceremonies they need to take part of in order to be saved? The answer is no, and we're not going to lay that burden upon them. The opposite of that, though, tends to be there's nothing required of me at all. I'm free in Christ. I have liberty in Christ. I can do whatever I jolly well please. And actually, there's plenty in the New Testament that would, uh, that would not only call that into question, but just flat out contradict it. Um, there, there is stuff demanded of us as believers, not as a condition of our salvation, but certainly as fruit of it and evidence of that. But it seemed good to the Holy Spirit to lay on you requirements. And not only on the Holy Spirit, it seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us. That God is saying, your freedom is limited. (laughs) And here by consideration of others, sensitivity to sort of what's required in order to maintain the unity of the, of the body. Again, we actually don't, there's, there's some things we don't know that just aren't said for us here. But, but again, part of the reason I, um, I, I draw this out of this, of this passage is because while there is this tendency in all of us, and it has been all throughout the course of church history, to drift either toward legalism or to lawlessness. Um, it seems in our day what the trend is among professing evangelicals is um, to, to celebrate, champion freedom and liberty to such a degree that they, they want to presume that there's really nothing commanded of me at all. It doesn't really matter what I do, God's going to forgive me anyway. 
and, and um, again, I wish I, could, I wish I could say more about uh, all of that today. There's another whole sermon in that. But, it, but, but this just flies in the face of that to say, we're going to lay no, other, no greater burden on you than these requirements. You know what? I, I don't know what it's like to live in Antioch or Cilicia or these places in the first century, but that seems like kind of a burden. I mean, their whole, there were some dietary changes, right? I mean, that's no small thing. You know, no other burden except don't eat this kind of meat and so forth for the sake of the body. Now, let, let me sort of sum all that up and then make an application of it or, or a sort of extended illustration. But here's, here's part of what we draw out of all that I've just said. Nothing more than faith is required for a person to be forgiven, but much is required for the person who has been forgiven. Nothing more than faith is required for a person to be forgiven, but much is required for the person who has been forgiven. Now, what does all this have to do with us? Well, if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, your heart was cleansed by faith. It's, it's, a, it's a done deal, something that has happened. And anything you try to add to faith actually subtracts from it. Um, we talked about a couple of weeks ago, it's like uh, rebuilding that wall with bricks and boards of the wrong kind, if you were here for that sermon. If not, that makes absolutely no sense. But you don't add anything to your faith that's actually makes a contribution. In the case of Judaizers, they went so far as to say, you cannot even be saved unless you're circumcised. And gospel-believing Christians don't usually go quite that far, at least not explicitly, but we, we might say all kinds of things that cause uh, people to question whether or not they have done enough or whether or not they're good enough. And this may be something, depending on how long you've been walking with the Lord and how sort of closely tied into the, the uh, other Christians, you know, sort of the life of the church, you, you may, may or may not be aware of the fact that there are people who profess faith in Jesus Christ and still question, does God really accept them? Because I see myself as really hard to accept. Does he really forgive me? Because... I see myself as hard to forgive. And we send all kinds of signals that reinforce that. You, you need to dress differently if you're a Christian. You need to tame that hairdo. You need to, you know, cover up those tattoos. Don't play cards. Don't go to theater. Don't watch movies or TV shows that are on the Christian blacklist. Don't drink. Don't smoke. Don't chew. Don't go with girls that do. And, you know, there, there are... You know, be sure to have your daily quiet time. Even I mean, there there are things we 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 do as evangelicals that are um, that are wise and good and fruitful and that sort of thing that we can put on as almost legal demands of us. There are people, as I said, whom God loved, God chose to save. That He people for whom Christ died who have a hard time believing He really loves them, and and we by placing other requirements on top of faith may actually reinforce 
their disbelief that God could love them unconditionally. It's like that they, they, they view their walk with God, their relationship with God, their Christian life, almost like they got a, the last ticket on a plane in economy class, okay? And they got the seat on the back of the plane in the back corner by the food station. Do you know that seat? You ever seen it? The bathroom door's right beside it, you know? Okay, so, so they, 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 kind of, they kind of see themselves with that sort of status. Last ticket, economy class, back of the bus where the bathroom and all the racket is, even the food station. But, you know, when the food comes around, they're not going to have any because they think, you know, I don't really deserve that. I'm just, I don't even know what I'm doing on this plane. Are you tracking with me there on that? I mean, sort of the feeling of the, the, in relation to God that they feel like this is their status or even in relation to other, th- other, other believers. They look around, everybody else on the plane looks like they belong on the plane. I don't know what I'm doing on the plane. Maybe I'm on the wrong flight. But in reality, the flight that we're on has no economy class. I mean, as believers, there is no economy class. In fact, it's all better than first class because it's, it's built for royalty. It's more like Air Force One. Okay, it's built for royalty for the purpose of delivering the king's children into the presence of the king. And for those who have a ticket <laughs> boarded that flight, you belong on the flight. There is no chance that anybody's going to take you off. No one's going to come around and say, you know what, I'm looking at you. I don't, you're not going to make the cut. Uh, you better put on this parachute because we're going to have to get you off of here shortly. No, no chance of that. No chance that when the plane lands, somebody's putting you on another flight to send you back. Because, see, it is God by his grace who came and issued you a ticket. But it's a long flight, and en route, the king has made arrangements to get us ready to enter his presence. And so he sends a helper around that says, you know what, we're going to cast off works of darkness and put on the armor of light, as it says in Romans. We're going to put on the Lord Jesus Christ. Make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. We're going to put off the old self, which belongs to our former manner of life. We're going to put on the new self. We're getting ready. We're getting dressed up to enter the presence of the king. And above all these, we're going to put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony, as it says in Colossians. But the legalist goes about putting on makeup and putting on layers of garments to cover up the old self, thinking that that's what really matters as long as I appear like I'm supposed to. That's what it's all about. The lawless one says, dude, why are you hassling me with all this legalism? You know, I'm good. I'm I'm free in Christ. I'm just gonna, I'm just gonna chill here. But the, the, the reason we're on the flight 
is to enter the presence of the king. And in root, he's getting us ready for that. And you know, there's, there's somebody here, and again, if you're, if you're tracking with me, if you identify yourself there, there's, there's some here who would even say, um, you know, I, I got a lot of old self to take off, and I don't, I don't think the flight's that long. I don't believe we got time for me to take off all the old stuff I've got to take off. Well, the good news is, um, sort of in a flash, he's going to finish the job <laughs> in the end. You'll be glorified as you enter the presence of the Lord. And see, it, it, gives, it gives purpose and understanding to um, why is it that he, he calls us to something higher? No, we don't have to um, put on righteousness before we can come to the Lord. We don't have to put on righteousness in any way that adds to our faith that somehow contributes to our salvation. We don't have to keep putting on righteousness to be sure we stay saved. But we do as he continues to make us more holy as we enter the presence of the Lord. It is, it is neither legalism that we're called to, but it's also not lawlessness. Because the one, uh, the one who, who has been forgiven has much required of him. Nothing more than faith is required in order for one to be forgiven. But much is required for the one who has been forgiven. And after all, um, doesn't he, isn't he worthy of all that we have and all that we are? Well, let's pray together. Well, Lord, we thank you for your grace that you sought us out and found us. Lord, that you issued us um, a ticket on that flight, as it were. Lord, I, I do know that there are people who struggle with their own sense of unworthiness, even though they have earnestly believed and trusted in Jesus. And yet they struggle with that because they have a sense that there's something they must do to add to that faith. And Lord, I just pray that by your spirit, you would encourage them with the truth. I know how capable I am to muddle something that ought to be perfectly clear. And Lord, wherever that is uh, a potential today, Lord, would you clear it up in the minds and hearts of people that they might walk in, in greater freedom and in greater surrender to you. And I ask it in the name of Jesus. Amen.